teen eating disorders have exploded in the pandemic, and the mental health crisis facing our youth is at an all-time high. Now more than ever, we need to ensure that home and school are places that intentionally decrease, not accidentally increase, risk. And it's never too early or too late to start. The Full Bloom Project helps groups of parents and school professionals rethink how we talk about bodies, food, movement, health, and social justice to ensure we all plant protective body-positive seeds in the next generation. To learn more about our workshops, email us at info at fullbloomproject.com. I'm Zoe Bisping, and this is the Full Bloom Project, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. A lunch monitor at my son's school recently told him he couldn't take an extra slice of salami because it wasn't healthy. She then praised his friend for eating a salad. Another faculty member told my other son's class that everyone was required to taste a new food at lunch that day. Now, I have perspective. I can see the well-meaning intentions here. But it did prompt me to write a message to our head of school which has led to a fruitful discussion about the unintentionally harmful and inaccurate messages about food, health, and eating behavior the students are likely hearing. This is a really common occurrence given the many unchecked ways diet culture shows up in schools, and you can learn about that more in episode number 66. But there's a limit to our efforts if all we do is point out the problems We also have to offer solutions, which is why I'm so excited to share this conversation that I had with Gwen Costell, a dietitian who supports educators across Canada with professional development learning, resources, curriculum review, and so many more amazing resources. Gwen has a wonderful Instagram account, dietitians, number four, teachers, which offers practical strategies to help teachers keep diet culture out of their classroom and help schools embrace a food-neutral and food-literacy approach to build confidence, skills, and protective knowledge for students of all ages. Here's my conversation with Gwen Costell. What is food literacy? So as with every single theory and concept in the universe, there is no universal definition, but food literacy is broadly, it's really about this interconnected and interrelated set of knowledge and skills and understandings. It's really about taking a step away from just nutrition and just the rules to like, we hope that people become empowered to like, feed themselves and be part of their communities and honor their cultures because they're going like they need to know more than just carbohydrates fat and protein like they need to know about food and nutrition knowledge yes but also food skills and the confidence and the self-efficacy to be able to actually use those skills and then food systems and culture and our emotional connections so it's this like interrelated web of like 
nutrition a bit, but then all of this also. So it's this, it's this really lovely permission giving and. So yeah, like generally it's just so much more than what we've been taught to teach. And it's just so much more than what we've been taught to be fearful of really. So I think it's a really positive thing. It's not new. It's been around, like, I think probably actively researched for probably the last decade or so. Um, and actively sort of played around with in school settings. Um, so it's not new, but it's still very much an evolving framework. And how do we measure it? And how do we actually impl- like put it into play? I don't think there's really clear guidelines on that yet, but it's coming. Well, we're going to stay tuned. And I think you're talking a bit about the main tenets of it yeah. in theory. And then in practice, I mean, the boiled down version, right? Like yeah. what does a a kind of food literacy curriculum or a food literacy intention, right? Like what does that look like in practice across the grade levels? Yeah. So like, let's go into the pieces a little bit more. So there's this food and nutrition knowledge, right? This is what we're doing now. What are the food groups? What's in food? What does it do for our bodies? Talking about nutrients. We do that way too early for kids that can't understand it. We'll get, I'll get into a bit of the age stuff in a minute. And like recognizing that food and nutrition is a science, that's food and nutrition knowledge, right? Food skills is something we're missing in a lot of cases, especially with the de-emphasizing of food programs in schools and like home economics type streams and threads um, and home transfer of that skilling. Some people call it the great de-skilling of like <laughs> Okay, Uh, but like measuring and chopping and how to read recipes and how to actually go to a grocery store and navigate and like shop from a budget and these kind of things, they matter. And then the like self-efficacy and confidence part is like nutrition literacy. Like, do we know how to tell the difference between like good, like solid information and not? And like, if we're shopping for a food allergy, do we know how to read a food label for that to keep someone safe? Not only do we have those skills, are we confident to use those skills, right? So, like, does someone feel like they could go home and, like, yeah, I could probably make, you know, grilled cheese for my my little brother. I feel confident doing that. I know how to use the stove safely. And then food attitude. Like, do we have a desire to prepare food? Like, do we think it's enjoyable? Do we respect other cultures? Do we know, like, how to do that? Do we have a good relationship with food? Are we scared of it because we've been over-nutritionalized, I guess? And then here, this part of food literacy, the food systems part, is probably getting a lot of attention because a lot of like ag group, agriculture groups are like really excited that this is part of it and it's important. But like, how does food grow? Do kids know that like a hamburger came from a cow? They don't all know that. Like, do we know that pasta came from wheat, which grew from, you know, grew on a farm? Probably, you know, in North America. We don't know. Social determinants of health. Like, there's just so much more to it. So, like, when we get into those tenants and what we can do, that's where a lot of the research has been. Like, is what is food literacy? What are the buckets? What you're asking about here is the, like, what for each different age group. And this is where I'd say it's still fairly emerging. You know this probably better than anyone, Zoe, but like those ages of development, like, and I, and I, I'll ask you, is Piaget still the kind of 
relevant framework. People still care about that. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So like, if you think about that as like, and I'm sure there are other ways of thinking about it, but like that, that really black and white thinking is pretty prevalent until like adolescence, like until early youth. And so in some of our curriculums or the way we interpret some of our curriculums, like teaching about invisible nutrients to our youngest humans, like we just can give it up. We can let that go because it's just, just let it go. Let, it, let go. it go. Yeah. Sing it. Yeah. Find your inner Elsa. Let that go. And yeah, like the opportunity. So when we think about it, like, oh no, well, if I can't teach about nutrients, what else can I teach about? Like food literacy adds this framework that's like, oh, I don't have to be worried that that's going away because now I can talk about like, where, how does wheat grow? Where does it grow? Um, If I was using flour, like mixing it in a bowl, like really early cooking and food skills can be done instead of talking about carbohydrates with like five to seven-year-olds because they don't need to know that. It's not going to serve them any purpose except food fear. Food fear, especially because just for context, they are growing up in diet culture. They're being raised by us and we are cut from the cloth of diet culture. And so I assume you agree that we don't really have to worry so much about teaching our kids to avoid certain (laughs) foods. Like they're just, if anything, we need to help them think about food and relate to food in a different way. That's going to combat those messages of avoid this, more of this, less of this. Like we want them to have, like you're saying, experiential moments with food where they're thinking and feeling about food in a holistic kind of a way. Absolutely. And that's one of my key messages for teachers is like, even if I can't convince you that like sugar and diabetes, it's not always a causal relationship. The one thing that you can do is know that they are already hearing that message over and over and over and over, like everywhere. And you can choose to double down on that message or you can choose to add other topics to round out their food and nutrition exposure and their learning differently. So yeah, even if I can't convince you that we don't need to teach that at all and kids probably don't need to hear that message, there's still other really great things to teach that you can do instead because you can rest assured, and I'm using air quotes that your audience won't be able to see, but like rest assured they're already hearing the fear-based messages. They're everywhere. There's a concept called scaffolding. So teachers know this really well, right? Like when we teach, like if you think about your kids or when you were in school, like you learn reading in a way that's like you learn a bit and then a bit more, and then a bit more as you move through school. Same for math, same for like every other subject. What I see happening in the nutrition space, and like when we teach about food, is we go right to the top scaffold (laughs) rung. We jump to the top of the ladder, um, and we're into like really complicated concepts like nutrients that don't feel complicated because we're hearing about them all the time. But for like brains that don't even, can't really conceptualize invisible things, it's really complicated. So it might feel really overwhelming to think like, oh my gosh, I have to teach these kids how to cook? No. (laughs) Especially if you're in the early grades or if they haven't gotten the learning yet, you're at the bottom of the rungs. So you can do things like mixing or 
a little bit older, you might do like grating cheese or, you know, basic knife skills or how to peel something. Hygiene stuff like food safety, like washing your hands. You're already doing that. Schools are really good at that now. But like washing food, why we keep things in a refrigerator. As you get into those older grades, you can get into things like the history of refrigeration. Like why was this needed? The history of food guides. Why did we start telling people what to eat? Where did that come from? Well, it came from wartime measures, especially in Canada. It came from, I wasn't around, but uh, making sure my ancestors all had enough to eat. So, you know, one of these curious questions is you might look at multiple different food guides and see, how did this come about? And sort of that social studies lens on it. The food skills, I think, is the piece that feels probably the most uncomfortable unless you're like a foods teacher. And again, like it doesn't have to be really complicated. Like you might mix blocks in a bowl. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily have to be about food. You might watch little videos. You might talk about a family recipe, things like that. Um, You might talk about some of those words. There's one that I know of, um, one example from the UK where they've taken a start at laying out what the different age groups should be doing or, or could be learning. I'd say that framework is pretty close up until about age 11. Um, there's a pretty huge jump in the content at age 11 where it gets really, really complicated, Zoe. Like, it's it almost gets into some of the stuff that I didn't learn until university. And I just, you know, I just keep coming back to, like, I think we're over-teaching nutrition. But so there's work. There's there's new work that's going to be coming out of Canada. I know um, Australia is a big research team on this. And I think we'll see more of this scaffolding, what should happen at what ages, coming soon. And though it's not necessarily, well, maybe you'll, maybe you'll tell me it is, but I'm thinking that a natural pull-in here is food exploration and appetite awareness. I'm aware that all of the interventions that are really, I think, designed more for picky eating or ARFID, this Mm -hmm. food exploring, using the senses and kind of building up those acceptance skills – This feels very obviously to me what needs to be in every school handbook because, you know, I think about my own kids' schools and some of the reports like innocent teachers that are, you know, monitoring lunch, giving praise to a kid that chose a salad, telling one kid, you can't have seconds of salami, it's Mm -hmm. not healthy. These like seemingly irrelevant, seemingly helpful comments being potentially the straw that breaks the camel's back of an eating disorder for a a specific, you know, a a vulnerable child, or it's just confusing, you know, like that kid who went for the second salami is trying to potentially get their needs met when that's the only safe food they recognize because their food acceptance skills are where they, you know, lower than another kid's. And then I think about this very typical kind of polite bite requirement or try something new today requirement Mm -hmm. and how I feel like this is a really nice moment to open up all kind of lunch monitors eyes to you could explore food just by looking at it Mm -hmm. or just by smelling it and to ask Mm -hmm. kids 
where are you comfortable? Which sense are you comfortable using today, right? And if you're not ready to put it in your mouth, that's okay too. You're still exploring. And and yeah. I wonder if we could consider some of that work part of food literacy. Yes. So like food and nutrition knowledge for like that youngest group is like being able to describe it, being able to like recognize that there's multiple components to a food. Like what does this taste like, smell like, look like, touch? Like what does it sound like sometimes? That's much more appropriate than this goes in this food group. This goes, because that like that's just not helpful knowledge because they're not at the place where they're planning their own meals. Um, like that becomes helpful knowledge of being able to like put a meal together like later on. So like planning for food preparation and food preparation are actually um, can be seen as separate and distinct skills. And that's where, yeah, knowing a bit of that's important, but you're absolutely right. Those younger, like those really young ones, just being around food and seeing it and having access to see and touch is really important. The other thing you named um, there around like food monitors and like I have so much compassion for what what staff and volunteers and schools are asked to do that that sometimes that's really a tough place to be because there are parents that ask for that type of monitoring. There are admin people that ask for that type of monitoring. It's really tough, but it's really important to remember that for tons and tons of kids school probably isn't that super safe place to try a new exposure to something that's hard. And like around food, so I get questions often like, this kid brings the same thing every day. I'm I'm nervous about it. It's, you know, salami and orange slices every day. I'm worried about the nitrates or whatever. And I will often take a minute to kind of reflect and say like, okay, like, what do you, what do you think is going on? Or have you talked to the parent? Because as a dietitian, I know there are tons of kids that take only their safe foods to school because there are kids that don't have an appetite at school because they might be on certain medications that take away their appetite during the daytime hours. There might be kids that are really just coping at school and safe foods is a way that like a parent can send love with their kid to school. And so the focus on like health, and nutrition can't be more important than like feeling safe at school. And the advice I always give educators or people that are worried about what they might be seeing come in lunch boxes or kids that might only eat a little bit off their lunch tray from a school program, check in with the parent. Just sort of like, hey, observing this, is there anything you would like that would be helpful? Do you think like, you know, what a quieter environment? Like, is there anything I can do? And they might say, nope. We totally know that they don't eat a lot at school. It's totally fine with us. Yeah. I think to add to that, for those that are monitoring lunches, I mean, it's an enormous responsibility, actually. And we treat it in many ways as just like, you got to do it as part of your, you know, part of your job responsibility. And then because it feels like such a kind of incidental thing to ask of people, they're not really given much training around it. So I'm with you with the, the compassion. But there is such an opportunity there for you to be the person that helps that child build their body autonomy by not 
commenting, right? Or by not pressuring them or by not even requiring them to do anything other than show up and do their job, which is to eat what they choose off their tray or whatever. And to your point, if you are noticing trends that Mm -hmm. concern you, that's a great moment to either talk to the parent or even just like the counseling. If you have a school Mm -hmm. psychologist, a school social worker, just to sort of quietly flag something just so that, you know, clinical eyes can be on that kid without ever having to talk to that kid, you know, without ever having to presume that there's an issue because we don't want them to become self-conscious of what might just, like you said, might just be them coping or Mm -hmm. them doing the best they can in any given moment. And, you know, the opportunity, you know, Ketcherell talks about responsive feeding all the time. And while you may not feel like you're in a feeding relationship monitoring the lunchroom, but like being aware of what's going on. And, and once we relieve ourselves from the like, you need, you need to make sure every kid eats their carrot sticks, we can be a little bit more in tune of like, you know, what's going on for that kid in a, in a holistic way, right? Like what's going on for that kid in general? Are they falling asleep? Are there other things going on? As we get into like, the scaffolding so interesting and I'm really looking forward to seeing the next work come out about it because I think we have a pretty good understanding that we're definitely over teaching nutrition to the little people. Um, like, please stop saying carbohydrates and anything under like grade five please. But it does get messier when when that sort of ability to do that complex thought does come up. Um, like some frameworks get right into like, you know, all these complicated like nutrients and micronutrients and how they work and exactly how much and da 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 and like RDAs, like recommended dietary allowance of certain nutrients, which I'm like, I don't know that any kid needs to know that. Like, Maybe maybe know that, hey, isn't science cool? We have a general understanding that people need this much vitamin D or this much calcium, et cetera. But to, to make kids learn those numbers is probably completely counterproductive and reinforces that that like monitoring and tracking mentality, which is which is really dangerous and connected to that that disordered eating behavior for sure. So yeah, I, I'm really like being Canadian. I'm looking forward to seeing the Canadian stuff come out, but I'll take it from anywhere. I think we should just keep pushing this because yeah, teachers need the what next. One thing I want to say is I think a, a great harm reduction approach, and maybe we'll get to this at the end when we do our innovation, is to at least acknowledge what you just said, right? Like, isn't this cool that we have these generalities? And then to at least as that harm reduction effort say something about how everybody's different, every family's different, that this doesn't really speak to everyone. Also, to be able to know at all times that eating disorder risk is present anytime Mm -hmm. you have these conversations. And I think that's not always on people's minds. So even if you're not going to stop teaching in this way to at least recognize that there is a risk and that there needs to be some acknowledgement and some attempt to at least name it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, maybe we have to think a little bit about how you can name that without knowing a whole lot about eating disorders. I think that can be tricky. 
I think less tricky than you think, but but yeah, I fully acknowledge. And I think one of the things that I would love to see teachers getting more comfortable with and doing a bit more often is like, and so like, here's the guidelines and here's why they're created and, you know, like, isn't science cool, but what do we think might be being missed here? So the food guides are, um, you know, U.S. has my plate and we have Canada's food guide, which looks a lot like my plate now. And, you know, you can say things like, yeah, this is, you know, this is a way of eating and here's why it was developed and here's how we got here, we think. But like, who wouldn't this work for? Or, or where could this be a problem? Or like, does everybody eat off plates? No, they don't. Like lots of families don't eat off plates. And does everybody use a forks? And does everybody eat these foods? Um, does everybody eat mixed food like this? Um, I worked with a teacher recently and encouraged her to do like a cost comparison between like Northern Canada and Southern Ontario for looking at um, looking at like, could you eat, could like, can every family eat this way just because it's for all of Canada? So like U.S. would be the same. Like, does it make sense that we have one proposed way of eating for everybody? So in that protective space, like giving them some permission and some role modeling of like guidelines exist to serve a purpose, but it's really good that we learn how to ask good questions about them so that we we can be always sort of critically evaluating information, even when it's, you know, sold to us as the ultimate truth, because even our ultimate truths change all the time. Yeah. So the building critical thinking skills there. Yeah, absolutely. When um you know, when we think about, when you read the research on food literacy, we also need to be really critical about this because food literacy is being proposed in the research as like it connected to body weight, like every single study. <laughs> so, Like every study that talks about food literacy, it's this great promise to finally fix the problem that our countries have around body weight right? That, that this will make people lose weight. I don't know that it will. The other, the other big promise is that food literacy will like become, uh, it'll solve a lot of ecological problems and environmental problems because we'll have better appreciation for our food sources and our systems and we'll be less wasteful. And like, I, I would love that, but we have to be so careful that like causation and correlation are different. So, you know, I, I'm not ready to hang my hat on any particular reason, but, and what's missed in a lot of the research is like this relationship and eating, like, why are we talking about the O word so much when we could be talking about eating disorder prevention, which is d dangerous for kids while they are still kids. I think there is still a lot to come in the food literacy world. Um, and there's no great way to evaluate it or measure it. Like how food literate are you? That doesn't really exist yet. So it's still pretty babyish, but I like common sense wise, it just makes so much sense like to teach. It makes so much sense. And I think especially as it's an emerging framework an imperfect framework, my hunch is folding in lessons about size diversity and, you know, reminders that even if we are all as food literate as possible, it does not control for the social determinants of health and it does not change genetics and your predisposition yeah. to either be in a larger body or a smaller body. And that 
I do think that it's, it's important to make those connections, even in just like little planting little seeds about all that. Well, the egg side of food literacy is going to love that you just used that reference, planting little seeds. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is really important, like that, that it is little changes that teachers can start making. Like, I think we often talk about this, like, we, you know, as humans, we like, we gravitate towards the big overhaul, right? And it's really important in change, like in change science, that we remember that things need to be tested and then scaled and tested again and adjusted and tested again. And so I know we're going to talk about it in a bit, but there's so much opportunity to test small little things that are in your control while we're waiting for the big aha. Yes. So let's innovate. Gwen and I are going to imagine that we're doing a micro mini workshop for, let's say, school professionals who want to give their curriculum a body positive boost. Body positive is a tricky term, I know, but for the purposes of this, what are those sort of lowest hanging fruits of food literacy that, let's say, we do see as potentially being very powerful little seeds, um, little tweaks? and ways that we could empower school professionals to just sort of do step one, step two, step three, not to make an enormous difference structurally in their schools necessarily, but to make maybe a difference like tomorrow. So step one, step two, step three is start talking about food and not nutrition. So like, and this can look like so many cool things, like how food grows, how do we cook food, you know, talking at reading, like if you're in a, in a younger grade, like reading a storybook that has recipes through it, and there are some great ones out there, talking about what food grows around you. And one of the biggest opportunities is to bring other people in to speak. So like using guest speakers, like a, like a chef and with ground rules, you need to make sure diet culture is not seeping in through the people or, you know, um, local indigenous folks that may have stories to tell about the land and foods that grow there. So teaching about food is I would help teachers kind of like step away from that nutrient focused or nutritionism as we've talked about it before that nutrient focused and talk about food instead. If you had the ability to do like, so like in my head, I'm picturing like a food literacy course, which I don't know if I'd call it that, but there would be lots of guest speakers, but there'd also be lots of like hands-on food preparation and eating together. So like in every week you might kind of make a small recipe and then you'd sit down and eat together, which is a really important component of food literacy is being around other people in that relationship with food and understanding how much food to make for our 25 person class. How much, how much food do we need to, to budget and make sure we have available and then through food learning about like social determinants of health and exploring like that food cost difference different places in the world or you know we like chocolate well did you know chocolate comes all these different like it actually doesn't usually grow in North America and how it actually gets here or that cheese is a processed food it's not a bad food but it's a processed food and so I think this was actually something very similar to this was done by Eric Schofield in Vancouver in 2012. Did this like pilot test of like if ran a course and it would it had a lot of like 
external knowledge coming in and, and leveraging up other people and cooking together and lots of field trips, like going to a farm, going to a grocery store, going to a fancy restaurant, um, I believe was done in that course, like just to see all these different ways of being around food. I want to just insert to that and then we'll go to two and three that in all those conversations, there are so many opportunities almost to plant seeds of mindful eating, because if you are tasting foods, whether they're new foods or, or not new foods, there's a whole taste literacy, you know, and descriptive words literacy. And that's sort of pulling in the food exploration that um, we did a two-part episode with Danny Lebovitz, which was really great. And to be remembering that in those experiential moments with food and, and gathering and learning, if you have opportunity to taste new foods, to give kids opportunity to use any of the five senses that they're willing to use and, you know, not to celebrate the kid that's willing to taste it and vilify the kid that's only willing to look at it, but rather, you know, say everybody is tasting at their own or exploring at their own rate. But to include that, I feel like is that's so well-rounded, you know, like, so it's such a rich experience to offer young people. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and again, like, no mention in any of that about what's inside the food or what it does for the body because we've just we've we need to step back from the health functions of food it's just there's so much more to it than that and that's not what sticks that doesn't the rules don't last they don't stick with us not in a good way anyway not in a good way <laughs> right yeah what would you add i would add that with uh, the exploration i might add to be reinforcing through all of it that kids don't decide, like kids don't choose what's going to be on their dinner table, you know, and, and to, you know, be mindful of building like empathy skills in there, right. Empathy and also like curiosity for other people's culture and just sort of an appreciation that not everybody's table looks like this. And, you know, just to sort of plant that seed for, you know, different people live lives in different ways and, I think it's almost like a kernel of that kind of social justice, like appreciating that some people have better access than others. And without getting too complicated, I think there are ways to talk about how not everybody's table can look like this. So whether you're in a super affluent community where, of course, everybody's table looks like this, I'm imagining a a classroom sitting down to a beautiful meal like you're describing, Um, but to also make a, a... make a note, right? That like, not everybody in the world has access to this, not to preach gratitude so much as to just sort of plant the seed that differences abound, you know? Yeah, I I agree. I think that's really important. I think that's part, that's essential. The other piece I think is really around like, so there's, there is the nutrition knowledge piece and like knowing that, but making sure you know when to wait. So prioritizing the food, not adding that nutrition piece until later. And then, yeah, that, that joy and that meaning through food, I think is really important and making sure that people do know it's okay to eat for all of those wonderful reasons. The social determinants of health, like there are some really cool things you can do around that. Like even looking at um, your community may have like something where they actually disclose what the monthly amount of 
income that someone might make on social assistance and compare that to the local rent market. Like, like actually do the math with your class, like in that empathy building and, and sort of understand that like, oh, the pull your socks up by eating organic food to get, like, isn't possible because um, buying fresh food at all isn't possible. So when we talk about food systems, like so much more than even just the agricultural side, like food banks and social assistance programs and like what else is out there? How do things get to the grocery store? Like I think that food systems piece can be really fun. There's some great resources out there, but even that equity and empathy piece, like we need to think about the rainbow even that, you know, eating the rainbow is not appropriate for everybody or eating whole grain is not appropriate for all cultures that, you know, there are many cultures where, where white rice, for example, carries a lot of meaning and saying to like, just saying as a blanket statement, like you should eat white rice, you should eat whole grain rice could actually be meaning a whole lot more to that student and that family than you ever intended. I think that in addition to the social determinants of health and also what what you're describing, the kind of unintended harm or messaging caused by those seemingly friendly statements, eat the rainbow, whole grains are, you know, optimal. Yeah. I think, though a little tricky, I would want our participants in our mini workshop to come away with a little bit of heightened awareness for neurodivergent kids too, mm-hmm. any kind of neuroatypicality, but I'm thinking of any sort of spe- autism spectrum or anything where there's sensory uh, challenges to really understand that a kid's safe foods, like what we were talking about earlier, might mean more or what the way a kid is eating might mean more than you think or their reluctance to participate, let's say, in the now we're all Mm -hmm. tasting the apple, you know, let's say you're doing your beautiful food systems, where does the apples grow on trees? And, and, you know, an apple for a a kid who's, you know, developmentally needing things to be very predictable and is needing a cracker because the cracker is the same flavor profile each and every time. Whereas an apple, you don't know what kind of flavor or texture or, you know, I don't think we are widely aware of that as sort of just like another way to be a human. And so I would want to include that in our little kind of basic competencies as well. What do you think? I agree. Entirely agree. And I think, you know, seeking out the right people to do that teaching or to like, hear some resources like, um, Noreen is a dietitian in Canada who does a lot of that work around uh, with dietitians and parents, but around that, like that neurodivergent and eating work. The other opportunities to add in is like, oh, if I can't teach about nutrition as much, what can I teach about? Digestion is pretty fun. Most kids like to talk about poo. So like, um, like, or how the tongue works or taste buds, like I think adding a bit of that in as well, can be part of that systems thinking like that, our bodies function in a certain way or designed a certain work in a certain way. And then you can add some of that, like what, why might someone have a pouch on the outside of their body? And you can add a lot of differences and and new things to teach there. But one of my hands down favorite activities to tell teachers about, and it works pretty much every grade is take back the term healthy eating and own it as your class. And so 
I've seen it happen with a grade six class where, you know, she said, okay, well, what does healthy eating mean? And the kids will, you know, and food for energy and lots of vegetables. And she says, well, what, does it matter if you like it? Does anyone like their food? Oh, and like, and then so you can, you can take charge with this word and add things like, oh, well, I need to keep, it's healthy in my family to not have peanuts because somebody's allergic to peanuts. Great. Allergies. Well, you know, my mama is, uh, you know, she's allergic or, you know, she has this health condition and needs it this way. Great. Okay. And so you can add out all this other stuff that takes back into the classroom, that definition of healthy eating that then can be kind of the groundwork for all of this is we just, we need to get it out of only the health sphere and like that being culturally connected or food that's local or we eat only, we eat mostly food that we grow on our farm, um, that all of that can be in your classroom definition of healthy eating. And that is food literacy before we have a handbook of teach this and then this and then this. It's recognizing that it's just so much more than nutrition and you have so many more options to teach about. I love that. And I love the invitation to think about it as a class, healthy eating, especially if a class is literally focused on something like nutrition or health, but even if it's just like a homeroom doing this. And it's similar to that question that I ask school administrators when I'm kind of planning workshops and partnerships with them, what do you want health to mean at your school? And do you want it to be um, accidentally oppressive or do you want it to be intentionally inclusive? (laughs) And I think you're saying, well, we can take that and even talk about healthy eating in a new way. And I I don't want to get rid of the word healthy. We can't. It, everybody uses it, but we need to, like you said, take it back, reclaim it, reframe it. And I think that the competencies that you teach and I teach and whatever, like our little, our little yeah. micro mini course teaches would maybe just be about that ultimately. What do you want health to mean, healthy eating, healthy bodies to, to be inclusive and to be actually promoting well-being and all? Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Accidentally oppressive or intentionally inclusive, like absolutely intentionally inclusive is where it's at. And if that means that the lesson you like in previous years, you've spent a week on nutrients and because you're shifting to an intentionally inclusive, you're actually only going to breeze over nutrients for one period and the rest of it's going to be all this other like welcoming and food exploring and hearing about cultural food traditions that might be in your own classroom. I think that is worth the shift. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time.